This podcast is brought to you by Final Stretch Media. They gave me a voice. They turned my ideas into high-quality audio and video content. With their professional team, equipment, and expertise, they record, edit, and provide video and audio. Final Stretch Media has done a fantastic job with everything video and audio-related for me. So if you ever find yourself in the need, uh, you can find their information in the show notes. This podcast is also brought to you by Quickly Brain Racers, the first-ever live racing competition for the brain. Download their app and play live this weekend on an iOS device against the world. I have raced and it's really, really cool. So definitely check them out. You can find the link to the app in the show notes. Also, don't forget about our book, Thinking Critically, from fake news to conspiracy theories, using logic to safely navigate the information landscape. If you're interested in exploring how logic can be used to better help you to discern fact from fiction. The information landscape is perilous, but with the help of this book as your guide, you will always be able to find your way towards truth. It's available on Amazon today. Welcome back to another episode of Thinking Critically. Today, I am joined by a theoretical astrophysicist by training, Dr. Ethan Siegel, who left a promising research career in cosmology and a job as a physics and astronomy professor to focus on science communication full-time. He revels in telling scientifically accurate, beautifully illustrated stories about the universe with the widest audience possible. Uh, he believes this universe is the one thing we all have in common, and knowing our shared cosmic story should be, of, be for absolutely everyone, regardless of age, gender, race, religion, nationality, sexuality, educational and economic background, or any other trait. Through stories told in a variety of formats, articles, books, podcasts, videos, interactive discussions, as well as in-person talks, he's committed to ensuring that the best scientific knowledge we have about the universe is available to us all. Anyway, Ethan, thank you so much for joining. It's uh, my pleasure to have you on. Oh, it's it's my pleasure to be here. You know, um, anytime I get a chance where I could say, you know, there's a new audience out there that maybe hasn't heard of me or what I do or doesn't know about, you know, the story of the universe or is just curious about reality. I'm more than happy to engage and say, you know, there's a whole wonderful universe out there to understand, explore and find out about. Let's all do it together. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. Uh, as a physicist by training myself, somebody absolutely fascinated by the universe and how everything is put together. I, I, I can certainly appreciate the passion that you have for talking about it <laughs> and wanting me. to go out there and communicate it to as many people as you possibly can. Yeah, I mean, you know, I remember learning about this, right? I remember being a physics grad student because I, I did my cosmology through a physics route instead of an astronomy route. And uh, I remember when I was doing it, I was thinking like, are you kidding me? There's like I'm talking to like other physicists who, who aren't in cosmology and I'm realizing there's what, there's only a few thousand people in the world who know this stuff that I'm learning better than I do. Like there's only a few thousand people who know the story of where the universe came from, how it came into existence, how it got to be the way it is today and what its fate's going to be in the future. Why, why do only a few thousand people actually know the ins and outs of all of this. this. This is like the most fundamental sets of questions we can be asking and we have scientific answers for them. Why does the whole world not know about this? Because, you know, at least to me, oh, they, they sure want to, don't they? Don't, doesn't like everyone who ever wonders about existence like ask these questions? 
and and shouldn't the answers that we have like the best answers humanity has shouldn't that be available to everyone who wants it yeah absolutely uh, i mean I, I agree and i think that a lot of people are asking these questions uh, because existence you know particularly when you become a fully formed adult, you know, your brain is fully developed. You kind of start as, I mean, maybe even as a child as well too, you kind of like, what, what is it all about? Life's kind of weird. I mean, you kind of grow up in this system and then eventually you realize that uh, you're just this one individual um, who happens to be a primate with a highly developed brain, one of the most complex structures in the universe uh, that gives rise to this weird thing called consciousness. You live on this blue and green rock that's floating through an endless black sea that's insignificant in the grand scheme of things. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it really, really, once you start to think about it, it makes you wonder. And I don't know, and again, I mean, I'm biased here as a physicist myself. Uh, I don't know how you could not want to know more about that, at least from yeah, a scientific I mean, standpoint, because <laughs> we have tools I, to probe it. And we have answers to a lot of these um, fundamental questions. I mean, we don't have all of the answers, but a lot of the questions that are fundamental, like when is the beginning of time? What will the end of time look like types of things? We have more or less very good uh, ideas of what that looks like. Yeah, like the fact that we can look at the universe as it is today, and based on what we learn about it, that we can extrapolate very reliably, like with extreme confidence back billions of years or forward, you know, even more billions of years into the future. And we know where our universe came from, how it got to be the way it is today, and what it's going to do in the future. The fact that the, you know, a hundred years ago, these were questions for poets and theologians and artists and philosophers. And over the last century, um, we started to say, you know, these are actually questions that science can answer. We just have to ask the universe the right questions about itself. And when we do that, it actually tells us these answers. Like if, and that, I think, is at the core of scientific inquiry, is that if you want to understand any aspect of the universe itself, all you need to do is design the right test, an experiment, a measurement, an observation, whatever test it is, you put the universe itself or whatever aspect you're looking at to that test, and it will tell you that answer. It will tell you the answer about itself. So even if you had done all your assumptions wrong, you perform that critical test, it's going to tell you the answer. Even if you guessed wrong, you hypothesized wrong, that the test doesn't lie. The universe is not going to lie to you about what it does itself when you subject it to those critical tests. And that, that to me, that's the core of what science is. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's it's really interesting that there are, we have we have these kind of governing laws of the universe and facts, and the universe just kind of operates how it operates. And it isn't up to us to kind of judge it or want it to be something different. It just is that way. And in order to discover that, we have the scientific method. So like you said, you know, you design a particular type of experiment and you know, may not, you may not get it right the first time because of course that's the scientific process of having to hypothesize. Then you, you go through the method and then sometimes you have to reject that hypothesis and then go back at it again. But eventually 
the truth about how the universe works will drop out and then it can be added to humanity's tree of knowledge and you kind of learn a little bit more about the way the world works around us. It's, yeah, it's, it's all very fascinating. And uh, obviously I'm a huge proponent of science myself and a big fan of communicating it. And I just wish that sometimes people would appreciate it <laughs> a little bit more than, uh, than they currently sometimes demonstrate to us um, through, yeah. you know, not, not trusting the results, things of that nature. But anyway, we can get into that later. Uh, I am really curious, Ethan, mm -hmm. to learn about where it all started from. Like how oh exactly, boy. Yeah, like, like from a science, yeah, from the, your science journey, like when exactly did you realize that, hey, you know, I'm really interested in science and this is a path that I might want to go down as a career or to investigate further, let's say. You know, I, I think it's real. That's always the kind of question that's difficult to answer because I think we, we have a lot of pressure on ourselves, especially in this culture, in like Western 21st century culture that when you're a young person, right, we want you to figure out what it is you want to do, what you want to be, what you want to do to take that path, to go down it and to not divert from it. And, um, you know, that isn't how it went for me because, um, you know, and I, I don't think that's actually how it effectively goes for most people. I think that, you know, no matter how good you plan that path out, no matter how, you know, certain you are, like, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to be. This is the path I want to go down. You're going to run into moments where you go down that path where you seriously need to ask yourself, okay, like, I thought this is what I wanted to do. But, you know, I'm doing this day in, day out, day in, day out, and I'm not loving the day-to-day -day work that I'm doing. Like, I, I still believe in the big picture, but I don't feel that same motivation day in, day out to do the actual work that, that's going to get there. And, and what I like to tell people is we have taken this word crisis and turned it into a dirty word, right? We've said like, it's bad to have a crisis. You should avoid having a crisis. And to me, that crisis is actually like, it's that turning point where you realize this path I'm going down, it's not the right path for me any further. I don't know what I need to do next. Do I go left? Do I go right? Do I back up and look at where I might go next? Uh, but when you get to those moments in life where you're actively questioning the path you're going down, the day-to-day -day life you're living, the decisions you've made up until this point, don't shy away from that. That is something internal to you, yelling at you, telling you, crying for attention, saying, pay attention to me. Um, just because you've done this doesn't mean you have to keep doing it. And just because you've already taken all of these steps down this path, doesn't mean that path wasn't useful or valuable to you, but it also doesn't mean you have to keep going down this and only this path. So I would say the question that brought me, the time in my life that brought me from being someone who was, you know, interested in science and math and good at science and math um, to I'm actually going to be a professional at this. It came when I was 22 years old. Uh, I had finished college. I had a job as a public high school teacher. I was teaching physics and physical science. And it was a job where, look, I love teaching. I love, you know, 
mentoring people, helping them find the way in, their way in the world, making sure that the time they spent with me was valuable to them and that they go out into the world a little bit better equipped to be happy, well, successful, however they define it, than they were before they had met me. And it was only a few months into that job where I realized, you know, I can do this for the rest of the year. I made a commitment that I was going to teach here and I'll finish out the school year and I'll give it my best and I'll do a good job for all of these kids. Uh, but what is it that I would want to do? And I started thinking, you know, if I could know something, right? I wasn't worried about teaching people something. If I could know something, what would be the big questions I would want the answer to? And just like I told you earlier, it was these really big ones about what is the universe? Where did it come from? How did it get to be the way it is? What's it going to do in the future? And what is its ultimate fate? And I started to look into it and was like, oh, this isn't like philosophy or theology. This is a specific branch of theoretical physics of theoretical astrophysics called cosmology. And if I look at the universities around the country and the globe, I can find that there are theoretical cosmologists in physics and in astronomy departments. And if I find the one that's a good fit, where it's a good department, where it's a place I wanna live and where it has someone that I think would be a good advisor for me, that would be the place to go to grad school and get my PhD. So in the uh, fall of 2000 or the spring of 2001, like right during that winter, uh, I applied to seven different grad schools, some physics departments, some astronomy departments. And uh, that was, you know, I was accepted to, I think, five out of the seven. And I visited them and I picked University of Florida where I felt like I had the best uh, potential advisor down there for me. And that turned out to be a good decision for me. And even though I've had, uh, I'll say, a number of crises that have evolved with my life as it's evolved, uh, that, that was probably the big moment, deciding, like, I'm going to leave my job. I'm going to leave this career. I'm going to do something else. I'm going to go back to school for myself. I'm going to learn what I want to learn, and we'll see where this takes me. I think that was the, that was the big decision that took me from being uh, you know, a non-professional who was enthusiastic about physics, astronomy, astrophysics, cosmology, to being a professional. That's a uh, that's a fascinating story, and I I really like like how you emphasize the word crisis shouldn't be viewed as something negative, because I mean we all experience things in our lives that make us ask why am I doing this. And you experienced that. I've experienced something very similar when I went back for my PhD. I'm sure there are plenty of other people who have experienced these, uh, you know, crises in their lives, periods of time where, hey, you know, do I really want to go down this path anymore? And it's, I think, more common than people really realize. And I, I mean, I agree 100% with what you said earlier about the term crises being viewed um, as something negative, as in we shouldn't view it as something negative and something that you know people experience uh, regularly, and it shouldn't have this negative stigma surrounding it. But anyway, that's a that's a really fascinating story. Not to mention that you ended up someplace pretty nice too. Uh, you were studying yeah. in Florida, so the weather's not so bad. No, it's not so bad. <laughs> and you know, it's funny because when I look at where, if I think way back to that, you know, and it's hard 
it's hard to put yourself when you're in your 40s back in the mindset of being a 22 year old. But um, but when I think about that, you know, I I remember visiting all these different grad schools and liking them for different reasons. If I remember right, I also went to uh, to Boston University. I went to uh, Dartmouth. I went to Tufts and I went to University of Hawaii. And what what five different places, Florida, Hawaii, Boston, Dartmouth and Tufts, right? So, um, you know, I remember going to all of them and thinking about the pros and cons of each place. Um, I remember when I visited Hawaii, I was like, that's got to be my top choice, right? The Institute for Astronomy is there. They have access to the telescopes on Mauna Kea. They have a theoretical cosmologist there who's interested in the same things I'm interested in. And when I met that person, when I met that theoretical cosmologist, um, he told me that all of these questions I was asking him and all these things I was talking to him about, that's what he used to do. And he's not really interested in doing that anymore. He's more interested in pivoting to work on this other thing instead that I wasn't interested in. And that I feel, you know, I, I got some very good advice from uh, there's a professor named Esther Hu, and just by coincidence, she went to the same high school I did, but like 20 years before me. And I remember talking to her and she said to me, like, look, like, this could be the best overall place for you. It could be in the location you want. But if you're not going to have that advisor, that supervisor where you have that quality working relationship where you're interested in what you're working on with them and you're interested in this working relationship that you have with them. Um, you have to really ask yourself if this is the right place for you at this time. And I was like, you know, I, I really appreciated that advice. I really appreciated that someone was willing to say, you know, you applied to our school, we gave you an offer. And if the person you want to work with and the stuff you want to do isn't here, maybe you shouldn't go here. And that, that to me, like, I really appreciate when people will say like, you know, nominally it's in my best interest if all the students that we let in come here because we want our place to be the best. But, but when someone says, you know, I want you to do what's best for you, whatever that looks like, that's, that's something that always means a lot to me. And the fact that when I was a prospective graduate student that I got that message from, from a number of people. I remember the chair at the time of Dartmouth sort of gave me a similar message telling me like, you know, cause I asked him at the time, um, you know, he was like, do you have any questions for me? And I said, oh, you know, for your uh, graduate class in quantum mechanics, you're using this textbook that I used as an undergraduate instead of this textbook that most places use. And for electromagnetism, you use this textbook instead of this one that everyone uses. And you know, I wanna, I wanna be the best theoretical physicist I can be. I wanna challenge myself. I want to, I wanna learn as much as I can learn. And that means, you know, challenging my brain to grow in all the ways it can grow in. Um, I'm a little bit skeptical about coming to grad school here, knowing that, you know, maybe we're not learning this out of the hardest materials. Maybe we're not challenging ourselves in the best ways. You know, um, I was wondering if you had anything to say to me, and I, I don't remember this gentleman's name, but he, he actually also encouraged me to maybe look elsewhere as well to say like, you know, look, like we, our program is what it is. And yes, we're an Ivy League school, but also, 
if this is what you want for your career and this is what you need to learn and you feel is going to give you the best shot at being successful at whatever you're doing afterwards, maybe you'll, and he even said to me, like, maybe you should be going to a school that's better than Dartmouth. And, you know, for someone at one of the top colleges, at one of the top grad schools in the nation to say that to me, like that, that demonstrated to me a lot of integrity, but also, um, you know, it modeled for me as a young person at the time, what is good advice to give to young people when I'm, you know, years or decades later in that position where young people are coming to me. And by the way, it's not just young people, right? Because uh, when I went back to grad school, I expected that I was actually going to be on the older end of grad students because I took time off after college and I didn't go straight to grad school. I was really surprised to see that actually there are a lot of people who do stuff between undergrad and grad school or who switch fields or who get into physics or astronomy a little bit later on. And there were plenty of grad students, not just, you know, all over their 20s, but some in their 30s, one in their 40s. And I even had a grad student who started grad school when he was 52 when I was there. And a lot of times people worry, like, I'm too old to do this, aren't I? And, and my answer is no. If you have the time and the energy and the motivation, and, and look, it is a lot of time, a lot of energy and a lot of motivation. But if you have those things, and this is something you want to do, don't let age be a barrier. Um, because it isn't unless you let it be one. There are, there are, there are going to be ageist people that you'll meet in the field, just like there were bigoted people of all stripes you'll meet in the field, but you can do it. It's not like your brain has some special abilities in the 20s, in your 20s that are gone by the time you're in your 40s or 50s. It's still there. You're still capable. And a lot of these people that I know personally went on, got their PhD, and went on to have successful careers in the field after getting their PhD. So this is something that I want to make sure everyone knows if this is something you want to be a part of, that you feel this is my path, I want to go down this, you can do it, even if it's not the first thing you decided to do right out of college. Yeah, I, and that's wonderful. Uh, and I can totally relate as somebody who is getting a PhD in their 30s. Uh, I, so I went straight through for a master's degree um, after I finished my bachelor's, but then I took a break, a long break actually, in between finishing my master's degree and then going back to school to get my PhD. And yeah, I mean, I can say from the graduate program that I'm, I'm in, I mean, there are students of all different ages and when I was a master's student, there was an individual who was retired and was getting his master's degree in physics for fun. He was a phys high school physics teacher and he was retired and looking for something to do. So he went back and got a master's degree in physics for fun. So he was, uh, his name was Bob, but he kind of looked a little bit like Einstein with his hair. He had this weird comb over that would kind of like, like stick out like like Boy. Einstein, but anyway, he was like uh, yeah, he was like in his sixties or something like that. But anyway, it was just it's it, it was a great time, and yeah, definitely don't let age be a barrier. I absolutely love that. Uh, anyway, I I'm curious. So, did you uh, was your undergraduate in physics? Uh, I was a little bit of a 
indecisive undergraduate. I was sort of like, so I went to Northwestern and they had this special program at Northwestern that I was recommended to and I got into. It's called the Integrated Science Program. And basically it's its own major where you learn advanced mathematics and physics, but also computer science and astronomy okay. and biology mm -hmm. and chemistry and geology. And uh, like, I remember being a senior, being ready to graduate and taking a, like my last semester, taking an advanced course in neurobiology. And that was like a great experience. I had a, a young professor, she was pretty new and uh, she was telling us about the different neurons in the body and she was telling us about like how the different sensory systems worked and you know and so and now i know all this weird stuff about sodium potassium pump and how we used to think that there were uh three types of sensation neurons that there was pain and pressure and temperature but now we know there's four because itch is its own separate thing. And that's not something that we knew. We thought itch was like some weird slow pain thing and you would scratch it and try and reset that neuro, but no, you have totally separate receptors for itch and they take a totally different pathway. And that's, yeah. So I majored in that, that was like my default major, uh, but I also majored in physics and in classics. So if you need someone to translate Homer's Iliad from Greek to English, uh, I have a dictionary on my shelf and I could work through it for you. But um, <laughs> yeah, but I was someone that I, I liked a lot of different things. I was okay. interested in a lot of different things. And I think that for me, being an undergraduate was a time to explore all of those things and also to sort of, figure out for myself how to be a functioning adult in the world, right? How to, how to relate to other people, how to interact with other people, how to be a person living on their own with all the attendant responsibilities of that. Like these are, these are things that everyone has to do, but, but being a college student, I think is really the first time in a lot of people's lives that they get experience doing that. And so, yeah, like I, I can say like, oh yeah, I learned all this Latin and Greek and I got to live in Rome for a semester. And I also like studied physics and I got to intern at Fermilab and work for some NASA REU programs. And yeah, I did. I got to do all this cool stuff. But when you like ask me to reminisce about that time, what I really remember is not the individual things I learned, but the, the people I met, the experiences I had, the things that influenced me. And, you know, thankfully, uh, the amount that I know I got to grow and change from when I was, say, 18 and starting college to when I was 21, 22 and finishing college. Like, I'm, I'm very thankful that I got to have those years for not only my intellectual growth, but also for my personal growth. So, so you were a triple major then as an yeah, undergraduate? I was a triple major. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So you were, you were busy. You were, you were yeah, a busy you individual. Know, <laughs> you know, you, uh, Northwestern was where I did my undergrad and they are on quarter systems. And what okay. they expected you to do is to take three or four classes per quarter and Starting in my second semester, uh, I took an overload almost every time. I would take five or five 
and a fraction like I would take a class that was a fraction of a class so it wouldn't really count but I would I would take five or five and a third classes for like nine or ten out of those 12 quarters that I was there because I I sort of figured like well look I if there's all these things I want to learn when else am I going to have the opportunity to do it um, you know, why, why do I have to specialize and focus on just one thing? Because these physics professors are telling me, ah, when are you going to stop messing around with this classics garbage and just focus all your energy on physics? And apparently the answer was, oh, in 2001, when I start grad school, but not now in the late nineties when I'm an undergrad. Um, so, you know, the, I would say the lesson for me there was you don't have to sacrifice completely your other interests in order to pursue the thing that you're most interested in professionally. It's, it's important to be a well-rounded individual, right? As, as adults, we call this work-life balance, and then we all laugh at how terrible we are at it. And I think part of that is because we don't get practice living a well-adjusted life when we're young. We don't see that modeled for us by adults. We don't hear that encouragement from professors who are doing it right. You know, when I, when I think back to some of the professors I had who worked 80, 100 hours a week, um, like, I, I don't think they had work-life balance right very well. And I think that, you know, maybe it's okay to not be the most excellent whatever you are because you did this all the time and you spent all your time on this maybe it's more important to be very good at the things that are important to you and not like the best you can be at this one very narrow niche thing yeah i definitely prefer the more of a, well, of course, a healthy work-life balance. And like you said, I mean, it is kind of laughable. We, we talk about this all the time in society and so many people are struggling with it, uh, particularly in ac academia. Uh, I know that a lot of academics, because they have huge pressure with all of these responsibilities to not only teach, but then you have to produce research too, uh, because there's the uh, pressure to publish. But just in general, like looking at whether or not you want to really be specialized, like hyper-specialized in this one esoteric area of like human knowledge or just human space, let's say, or just have an understanding of more uh, of a broader set. And I know that society kind of pushes people towards specialization, like hyper-specialization. That's just kind of how we operate right now. And I know for somebody like me, I prefer, and like, obviously, you know, you, you mentioned this as well. I prefer to be more of a generalist. I have a huge array of interests. Uh, I can totally relate. I mean, I changed my major a couple times when I was an undergraduate and I have, while I didn't have any sort of interdisciplinary type of science program, I was interested in so many different sciences minus chemistry. I'm not a huge fan of chemistry, full disclosure, <laughs> but uh, I mean, I have an undergraduate geology. Then when I was in graduate school, I pivoted to physics, but I also love psychology, absolutely love biology, I like sociology. There's so many different like facets of science that I have, that I have studied. And uh, I definitely struggled myself with the idea of becoming hyper-specialized because it just is not who I, it's not, not my nature to do that. Um, but anyway, that's just my two cents on it. And I, I guess I, I guess what I'm saying is I, completely agree with the notion of, uh, you know, maybe, maybe we should 
always, uh, not always, excuse me, uh, embrace generalism more, a little more than hyper-specialization. And definitely, of course, improve our work-life balance if we can. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, I think it's fair to say, like, you can do both. Like, we have, we have either this, we have this, I think, false dichotomy of saying, like, well, either you can become a jack of all trades and a master of none, or you can become a master at something, but that means you can't do anything else. And I don't think it has to be that way. I think you could be a jack of many trades and still be a master of one. You just have to get that idea out of your head that, you know, becoming an expert in something means you need to be the greatest expert in all the world at this one thing. And if anyone has any questions about this field at all, they need to come to you and nobody but you. I don't think that's the right attitude, but I think that's sort of the default attitude that is sort of impressed on a lot of people is like, oh yeah, like if you want to do this, you'd be the best at it. You'd be better than everyone else. You get all the training you do. Like, no, what we want to do when you're studying something is we want to get you past a certain threshold where you are competent enough and skilled enough and practiced enough that you can do this research that you're doing and extend it and make your own research program if that's what you want, that you can do that on your own, that you have the skills if you want to use them to go out and contribute in the world as a PhD, whatever science you are, that you can go and make your own individual contributions that are meaningful, you have achieved that level. I think that's really what getting a PhD is, is basically when your home institution says you've done enough and you've come far enough and you've reached this level of professional quality that you're ready for that next step. What else you do with your life, whether you've learned an instrument, whether you've become a kind and generous person who, you know, is altruistic and helps others out, whether you, you know, all of these other things that go along with being a good and successful person in the world, it's up to you whether you become that person or not, right? Whatever that looks like for you, whatever you decide, this is how it's important to be. That's something you have to cultivate because no one, no one at work is going to help cultivate that for you. That's something that that you have to decide on your own. And I think we don't do ourselves any favors if we say, well, this person is this good at this science, so let's ignore everything else about him, including you know, whatever shortcomings or whatever cruelties or bigotries they may have. But no, I don't think, I don't think we're willing to do science that way any longer, that we we did for a time, we were wrong for doing it then, and you know, and we need to move on to a better present and future. And I, I'm pleased to see that some fields are changing in that regard. I'll, I'll be candid and I'll say, I, I think astronomy is doing a better job of changing than physics is right now. But, um, but I think the, there is pressure for that needle to swing in a direction that's towards better mental health, away from, you know, a large number of suicides among students and people who study this and, and in an overall less toxic direction. So I'm, I'm pleased to see these things are changing. Um, but I also want to do my part to help those changes along.
Yeah, absolutely. And concerning the changes in the academic environment, I think there is a lot of work being done these days. Um, you know, you are a obviously a theoretical physicist, and I'm sure you're familiar with Sean Carroll, the theoretical physicist. Sean, yeah. yeah, yeah, Sean Carroll. Uh, so he has his own hot uh, podcast, Mindscape, which is uh, absolutely a fantastic podcast. But I know that he has talked a lot about the academic environment and the the yeah that it is a bit toxic at least in the past and there's a lot of work being done in the future and he specifically has talked about that in the theoretical physics space because that's obviously uh his space but that uh particular space and you're familiar uh, with it as well but i know that he did a different aspect of theoretical physics i don't know if he was astronomy or not but in the in his space he said that there was a lot of work that needed to be done but there are a lot of people uh such as yourself uh other people like Sean Carroll talking about it. I uh, did a podcast with a woman who actually founded as a PhD student, a organization that supported and kind of helped PhD students along their academic path as they were studying, studying towards and trying to complete their PhD, when it, uh, particularly when it came to mental health. So, cause a lot of, as you said, a lot of people struggle with, a, with mental health um, you, know, you know, that's twofold. So there's obviously going to be a genetic component to that. Uh, very smart people usually end up in PhD programs. And I'm not saying that it's only like really smart people, but sometimes you see these weird sort of uh, genetic quirks. Oftentimes you see like certain idiosyncrasies that come around, come along with some of these very smart people, one of them being that it appears that there's a correlation. I'm not saying like it's a super strong correlation, but a correlation of mental health issues. And I've observed that. And I think that there is some science to support that as well. Uh, so you have the genetic component to this, and then there is the intense pressure from the environment of having to be responsible for all of your coursework, as well as having to conduct research. So you're trying to balance all of these different aspects and particularly like in the first year, I'm sure, as you know, uh, the first year is particularly hard getting used to this intense workload. Uh, but anyway, yeah, there's a lot of great work being done. So I'm actually, I'm happy that you brought that up. Yeah, you know, um, Sean and I both have been close to people who, um, you know, have been involved in physics, either at the grad school level, the undergrad level, or, you know, the, higher professional levels, postdoc, junior astronomer, professor, researcher, um, where uh, some of our friends and colleagues have committed suicide. Um, and that is, you know, uh, I'll share with you that in 2007, uh, the person who was one of my best friends from grad school, um, he killed himself uh, while he was in his last or next to last year of grad school. And, um, you know, if I if I could go back and say anything to him, I would I would let him know that, you know, I know that what you're going through right now is incredibly difficult, that this is a challenge that feels like it's bigger than you can handle. You have things going on in your professional life and your personal life simultaneously that seem like they're too much to deal with. And I want you to know that we all go through dark times and I'm not trying to minimize the dark time that you're going through right now. But 
however long this hard time lasts, whether it's a year or two years, however long it lasts, you will get through it. And when you do, there are 40 to 50 more good years waiting for you on the other side. And I don't want you to miss out on these decades of good life because you don't see any hope for how you're going to get there. Um, you have a community of people who love you and care about you, and we can help you get from point A to point B when you start seeing that light at the end of the tunnel. Um, but but you, we can't do that if you take yourself out of the equation on your own. And um, I think a lot of people that that pressure to not be a failure, that pressure to, you know, get things right and live up to impossible to reach standards that you've set for yourself. Um, don't let that define your sense of self-worth. You're valuable just being you, exactly who you are. And all the rest of it, you know, we will help you figure out, like you're not alone as you go through this. and. You know, I, I think, you know, Sean and anyone who's been close to anyone who's committed suicide, um, that's a feeling that you can relate to where you, you never really get over it. You never stop missing them. You, you do occasionally stop beating yourself up over like, what could I have done differently to help my friend out to make it so that they would still be alive today. But, uh, but all you can really do is make it better, make the environment better, make the messaging better, make the resources more ubiquitous and available and normalize it. It's normal to see a mental health professional. It's normal to seek counseling. It's normal to take medicine if medicine is right for you and your doctor recommends it for you. This, this does not mean you are weak. It does not mean you're insufficient. It does not mean that you are a failure in any way. No person can get through all of their life and go from nothing to being a complete success all on their own. We all need help. We all need other people along the way. Take advantage of the resources that have been set up to help you get there. And if the resources that you are offered are not the resources that you need, there are other resources out there too. If you don't like your therapist, you can get another therapist. If your doctor is not telling you things that you can actually do, you can get another doctor. This is, you know, I, when I was in my first year in grad school, I was having a very hard time in one of my classes. And things got immensely better for me when I got a new pair of eyeglasses because I could see the board better. It's amazing. Like, oh, like maybe Ethan's not stupid. Maybe he just needs to see. You, you know, you need the right tools to succeed at what you're doing. And some of us need help in ways that others of us don't. That doesn't mean that we're inferior in any way. It means these resources are here for a reason. Now that I'm now that I'm part of the older crowd, like I 
I want to encourage younger people, take advantage of these resources. Don't feel stigmatized that you had to go do it. No, no, no. You made a good decision to take care of yourself because you recognize that you're more than a drone in a machine. You're not some grad school factory package that they churn <laughs> out and you're all done now. You're a real person with your own dreams and fears and issues to reckon with. And you're not doing yourself any favors by denying that those issues are real and exist. Yeah, those are that's wonderful words of wisdom. And I hope that for anybody listening to this, that they seriously take that to heart. I mean, and that's not just for graduate students, right? I mean, I mean, I suppose that's really for anybody who is struggling with mental health and maybe unable to see any sort of light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, there are plenty of resources in society, reach out to friends and family. And of course, particularly in graduate school, because of what you're going through, uh, the immense pressure that you're feeling from the department, or perhaps maybe you're not getting along with your advisor. But anyway, yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, I'm sorry about your friend, Ethan, that's, uh, that's very sad. And I know that personally, when I was in, grad, uh, when I was in graduate school, particular, uh, in particular, my uh, master's program, my first year as a graduate student, I actually had a mental breakdown. I had some health issues my second semester and I had to take some time off and I actually had to take an antidepressant for a while because I was, I was really bad anxiety, panic attacks, uh, some depression mixed in there as well. So, I mean, it happens. I mean, and not just, again, not just in graduate school, but sometimes in life, things just feel overwhelming and it's important to get the help that you need and you shouldn't be ashamed by it at all. Not at yeah. all. <laughs> and the nice thing about getting older and having a little more experience with it is you can recognize the warning signs when, you know, when you've dealt with something in the past. I won't say that it becomes easier to deal with in the future, but it becomes easier to get the help you need the more practiced you are at getting the help that you need. Uh, and that's true of your mental health, that's true of your physical health, that's true of your work-life balance. Um, practicing getting it right makes it easier to get it right in the future and also makes it easier to help encourage others to get it right and help them find whatever path is going to help them navigate themselves through whatever challenges they're facing. Absolutely. So anyway, uh, graduate school, you finished, you've got a PhD, you decided that you wanted to go back, do astronomy because you had some deep questions about the universe that you wanted to answer. Mm -hmm. So after you finish, what did you do? Uh, was it then for a professorship? Where does the whole science communication thing come into into play here? Obviously, so how you're does very, this happen? Right? How do you go? <laughs> how do you go from being a theoretical astrophysicist to being someone who quits being a physics professor to go become a self-employed science communicator? Like, what what sort of uh, you know? I, what sort of crazy person goes off and does a thing like that, right? Like who, who turns down the red carpet of a tenure track position that's offered to them at a prestigious liberal arts college to say, no, not me. I'm going to go out and write my own, you know, whatever for my own life and do that. How do you wind up taking such a strange path? And, you know, if you had said to me 20 years ago, Ethan, this is what you're going to wind up doing. 
I wouldn't have believed you. I mean, that sort of job didn't even exist. Who's a scientist who goes out and becomes a professional communicator? Like Carl Sagan was dead. Neil deGrasse Tyson hadn't risen yet. And like, what are you going to do? Well, for me, um, when I was a grad student, I had applied for postdocs in, um, in the fall of 05, because I was expecting to graduate in 06. And uh, I made the short list in a number of places, and I didn't get any offers. Um, and uh, then in 06, when it came, um, because I had defended, and I was all, you know, had all my ducks in a row ready to graduate, uh, they didn't give me an assistantship for that next year at Florida. So I was like, oh no, I need a job. I haven't graduated and I don't have a thing after. What am I going to do? I was like, oh, well, I have a friend. She was a postdoc at Florida. She's a professor at University of Wisconsin-Madison now. Um, she said that they have a teacher shortage up there. Maybe I can move there and go teach at University of Wisconsin for a year. So I did. I moved to Wisconsin. I taught for a year while I finished the paperwork and graduated. I applied for postdocs. I got a few offers and I wound up moving in 07 to uh, Tucson, Arizona to take a postdoc at University of Arizona. And that was where my new reality hit me with a ton of bricks because I didn't like it. I didn't like the advisor I was working with. We didn't have a good working relationship. I didn't feel at home in the department. There weren't other people there interested in working on the same things I was working on. And uh, I, I think, you know, once again, I was willing to have a crisis, right? What, what do you do? You, you've been going down this path. You've been really interested in research and you've been loving it. You've been knocking it out of the park. But now you're in this situation. What are you going to do? And I was like, well, what else do you like? What else do you like to do? You always love teaching. You want to reach as wide an audience as possible. So what should you start doing? Well, start writing about science, start giving public lectures, start doing radio shows, start, you know, make videos. Like do, if you want to communicate science, you know the science, start communicating it. You. You know how to write. You had lots of experience with that. You give good talks. You've been a teacher professionally. You, you surely know how to do this. Just, just go out there and start doing it. So while I was a postdoc, I started my blog, Starts With a Bang. A year later, I uh, got an offer from this uh, little science startup called scienceblogs.com, which was at one point the biggest network of science writers on the internet. And uh, I wrote there for a few years. Um, and in the meantime, I you know, moved up to Portland. I got a job as a professor. And after teaching there for a few years, um, I had first moved to Medium and then moved to Forbes with my blog. And uh, I was like, you know, I think I can make a go of this being full-time self-employed, doing this writing, doing this communicating. Maybe I should try building starts with a bang as its own science communication empire, whatever an empire is. Empire to me means I could do this for <laughs> a living. Uh, like yeah. I've made a job for myself where there was no job before. Um, and uh, Lewis and Clark, the college I'm at, maybe they can hire someone else who wants to be here for 20, 30 years and make a career and a living out of this instead of someone like me who's going to use this as a stepping stone to a different goal. 
So I, I think that was it. As I said, look, I've got these passions, I've got these skills, and I've got the this knowledge and this know-how. I need to put it to good use. I'm a scientist. I know the science. I'm active in that. That's what I've been trained at. How hard is it to write? How hard is it to communicate? Well, these are things you're practiced at and you're good at. You haven't been professionally trained as a journalist, but you have been professionally trained as a scientist. So who's going to be better at writing about science? A professionally trained writer who doesn't know the science or a professionally trained scientist who you know, maybe need some practice to learn how to write. Well, I've written like 4,000 articles since 2008. So hopefully that's enough practice that now I'm good enough at this that, that you can't even tell the difference between my writing and the writing of a journalistic professional who was trained that way, except that I have a scientific perspective that they don't have. So I would say, you know, look, you're, you're gonna go out into the world and whatever's up here, I'm tapping on my head for those of you listening to the audio only, um, whatever's up in your brain, no one can take that from you. That knowledge you've gained, those skills you've gained, whatever it is you're actively doing, those skills and those capabilities you've developed, they're still there. Don't, don't let anyone fool you into thinking that the thing you used to do that you don't do now, that you don't still know how to do it. Don't let anyone fool you into thinking that your skills are gone. Don't let anyone trick you into not believing in yourself that you are capable of using and leveraging your skills to create something that didn't exist before you created it. Um, so I think, you know, that turning point in 07 and 08 was really what, you know, again, sort of changed my direction once again. And that's, that's kind of how I got into science communication is again, I, I had a job that was the job I nominally wanted. And while I was doing it, I wasn't loving it. So it's that idea again, have a crisis, change direction, try something new, whether, you know, I end up as a lifetime blogger or whether I use that as a stepping stone to go on to new things and things that I'm maybe more passionate about doing. Um, that's something that still remains to be seen. But, you know, again, when you go down that path of life, don't be wedded to staying on that path that you're on. If another opportunity, a better opportunity, a more satisfying opportunity comes up for you. Um, I'm a big fan of being grateful for all the good fortune and the good luck I've had along my path. But I also recognize that I've put myself in a position where if something broke favorably for me, I would be in a position to take advantage of that. That I, I won't say I made my own luck, but I put myself in a position where if I got lucky, I would I would benefit from that from that luck. And I think that that it's important to keep your eyes open for that type of opportunity if if especially if that's you know, if what you're doing right now is not the only thing you can imagine yourself being satisfied with your life if you do. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, what you said about luck there. So, you know, when it comes to success in life, there's always going to be a component of luck. And there is a support group of people around you, too, that help you to kind of, you know, boost you, um, encourage you, et cetera, 
to push you in a direction that you really want to go. Uh, but what I was going to say uh, with luck is, you know, of course you have to work very, very hard too. There's that component as well. You know, if you want something in life, you have to go out and really work for it and go get it, so to speak. But don't ever discount the um, component of luck as well. And you can always increase that surface area too, right? Through more, more interactions, uh, making connections with people, uh, you know, going out and maybe doing things that make you slightly uncomfortable when it comes to like a job perspective, something that you uh, wouldn't normally do, let's say, uh, kind of pushing yourself outside of the comfort zone. And who knows, maybe, uh, maybe you might get a little lucky and then, you know, do, <laughs> do what you're doing, which is, which is awesome, by the way, that you're able to do what you love full time. And you just kind of created it out of, you know, blogging uh, in your spare time because you wanted to reach a larger audience. Um, at some point I mean, in your I, scientific I, do. I, I consider myself very lucky for this. I also think that the steps I took to get there, and I want to be very clear about this for the young people listening now, right? The people who are listening to this saying like, I want to do something like what you did for myself, Ethan. And yeah, you know, if you want to do that, you need to be aware that the advice anyone would have given me uh, back when I was starting graduate school would not have gotten me to where I am today because no one was correctly predicting how the internet would evolve, how social media would evolve, how journalism would evolve. Like the things that people would have recommended that I do if I wanted to be a professional science communicator in 2001 would not have led to me being a successful science communicator 10 or 20 years later. And the things that I did when I was starting out in 2008, if I were to be that same person I was back then today, and I were to do those same exact things, that would not translate into the same success because the world has changed and this landscape of media has changed. Um, the things I did that made me successful, I'm always happy to, to share them and talk about them, but those aren't the same things I would do today. And you have to recognize as you go out in the world and you try to make your way in this, you know, in the world in 2021 or whatever year you find yourself in as you listen to this, um, make sure that you are not listening to yesterday's advice on how to deal with today's problems. Fantastic advice. Great, great advice. And of course, that doesn't apply to just science communication, whatever your career is, wherever, whatever it is that you want to do in life. Uh, it's really important to understand the, uh, the landscape. Um, and it's changing pretty quickly these days, uh, as far as the, the markets go. Uh, excuse me, not the markets. They might think I'm talking about Wall Street, but I'm talking like the, the economy, things of that nature. Uh, for example, like the gig, the gig economy now, it's a big, it's a big part of our lives. You know, the Uber, the DoorDash, all of these types of apps where you can just kind of pick up side gigs here and there. And that wasn't really a part of the economy 10 years ago. I mean, no, so it, yeah, it's, uh, it's remarkable how much it's changed and it will change even more so as, as time goes on. And it just seems like it's uh, changing at a, at a quicker pace, too. No, and, and opportunities move around, too. You know, when I was starting out as a science writer, the... I would say to me, the biggest space journalist in the business was Miles O'Brien at CNN, 
within the first five years that I started doing this, CNN ended all of their science reporting completely and Miles O'Brien was out of a job. When I started out, one of the most prestigious places that you could blog at was Scientific American. Over the last, I don't remember if it's the last year or the last two years, Scientific American has ended completely their blog network of contributors. So, um, you know, yesterday's opportunities are not necessarily today's opportunities. So when you go looking for who do I want to be like, what do I want to do? What do I want to work towards? You want to stay on top of where are the opportunities and what opportunities should I be trying to create for myself if this is what I want to do? Absolutely. And, you know, you made a comment earlier about, you know, when it comes to writing uh, and asking yourself at one point, do I want, you know, when it comes to scientific journalism, you know, do I want a journalist doing writing about science when they don't really understand the science or should I be, you know, should I be a scientist that learns how to write? And one thing that I do want to say uh, is that your writing is fantastic. Uh, I mean, I've been following you for years and I think it's, it's, it's really some of the best scientific writing I've, I've not ever read, but I mean, it's definitely up there, uh, particularly for the technical detail that you go into because physics, astronomy, these are very heady concepts, very complex, but I, I just think it's phenomenal writing. So you've clearly done a very good job over the years of refining your writing skills. And I mean, I think you're, I think the success that you've had in the space really speaks volumes to your actual ability to communicate these complex materials on a simplistic level to where the average person can't enjoy them. So well, thank you. I, yeah. I joke often that my uh, that my job is really just translating physics into English and that my job <laughs> is really as a translator, because in in physics, we're so used to speaking in the language of equations and we're so used to speaking in the language of quantitative data. Um, but what we're not used to doing is taking these concepts that we speak to with one another about in terms of like, you know, differential equations and velocity space and phase diagrams and all, all these scientific terms that we use, we're not used to presenting that in plain English. We're not used to sort of taking this, uh, the, the jargon out of the equation. We're not used to taking this professional veneer off and saying, okay, if I, this was explained to me a long time ago, as you got to imagine, you're talking to a Martian. And the person I was, who was telling me this was defining Martian as someone with intelligence, but no experience. So imagine you're talking to someone who's very smart, who can understand anything if you explain it properly to them, but initially they don't know what you're talking about at all. So what I always try and do when I'm writing about something, especially if it's something that I worry is gonna be unfamiliar to my audience is I'm gonna to say to myself, let's start at a place, wherever that is, where I can be confident everyone is comfortable. That, that I can start on what I would say is common ground where me and any random listener with, you know, intelligence is going to listen to this and say, okay, I understand where you are. And then what can I do? I can lead you 
up a step, that you could take a step up and I can say, okay, if you're comfortable being here, then I'm going to add this ingredient or I'm going to add this line of reasoning and we're going to take a step here. And so if you can start out down here at step A, then I'm going to lead you up to step B. And now we're over here at step B. You're with me, right? So now we're going to take another step and go up to step C. And if you can be comfortable at step B, now we're going to take that step to step C. And this is why if you're a professional, you'll probably be bored with the first two thirds or so of anything that I write because you'll know it all already. But if you're not a professional in that specific field or subfield, you're going to be able to follow and you're going to be at step A, B, C, D, E. And then when we take those last steps to step F or step G, like when we get to those last steps, that might represent that new thing, that new novel piece of information, that new novel contribution that's just come in with the latest study or set of studies. But now that you're up here at that last step now and you're looking back down at where you started and you're like, whoa, I can't believe like I'm way up here after starting out way down here. How did I get there again? And you're like, oh yeah, right. We started here and then we this and this and this. And before you know it, here we are. And this is what we know. But you also have that series of steps where you not only know, okay, yeah, yeah this is the conclusion, but you can actually follow the steps of this is how. And for me, that's the key of science is understanding how we learned this thing about the universe that we just built up step by step from our scientific foundations up to our modern suite of scientific information. And that, that to me, that's a story that everyone can follow. So if you start to notice, if you start reading me and you're like, oh, all of Ethan's stories, they seem to follow this same pattern. It's because like, I, I guess I've developed my own style. And as uh, Sabine Hossenfelder once said about me, I don't like Ethan's style, but at least he has a style. And that's more than I can say for most writers out there. So <laughs> if you like my style, then, you know, in your face, Sabine. And also that's right. Like it's, it's not going to be for everyone, but I hope that for the people who it does resonate with, that it is valuable to you and you do find it informative and easy to understand and, and maybe even interesting enough that when you run across someone who says something and you're like, they're like, how do we know that blah, blah, blah. And you're like, oh yeah, like Ethan wrote something about that. I'm going to show you because he not only tells you what we know, he tells you how we know it. And he tells you what we know and how we know it in terms that you can understand, even if you yourself are not a specialist in this field. Yeah. Anyway, like I said earlier, I think it's fantastic. I'm sure that there's a lot of plenty of other people out there. I mean, I know this because of how successful uh, Starts with the Bang is. And of course, you know, you have Forbes, Medium, all of this that a lot of other people value your work. Because, um, I mean, it's really important, particularly in today's age, uh, for scientists to try to connect directly with the public, because I think that as much as journalists want to do a good job reporting the science, they're not scientists at the end of the day. Uh, so it's really important for scientists, I think, to make more of an effort to try and connect with the general public, um, particularly more so than ever, too, because there appears to be this distrust of the scientific community, which has become really prevalent or obvious, I should say, this past year uh, during the pandemic. 
you know, not trust trusting like mask mandates or even now. So not trusting the safety of the vaccines that have come out, uh, that it's just so important for scientists to try to communicate to the public the best that they can, uh, because it's really detached um, from what happens with the average person to what is going on in like academic institutions or research labs and large corporations. Um, there's a huge disconnect there and the communication between the two is just so important in my opinion, which is why individuals such as yourself, I, I, think, I think it's wonderful. I think it's great. So, but you know, uh, I, I agree with that. And I think we have a responsibility, right? If you're, yeah. if you're someone who's invested, strongly invested in communicating science to the public, I, I think you also have a responsibility to sort of guide the public as to what is reputable science? What should you be doing in these circumstances? What should you be looking for and listening to? And who are the reputable, reliable voices? You said something way back at the beginning of this conversation about an hour ago where you were like, I, I wish that people had more of an appreciation for science and that's right. I did science <laughs> brings to their lives. Yeah. And to me, um, those are, that's one of, I think, the two biggest things about scientific literacy that, that I think you got right, that I think most people get wrong. You know, you'll, you'll see these reports come out every once in a while where they're like, you know, like one in four Americans believe the sun revolves around the earth and not the other way around. Aren't Americans stupid? Ha, ha, ha. And I look at those every time and I'm like, oh, Oh, why? Why is this the narrative you're spinning? And why is this what you're reporting on? Like, just because someone asked a multiple choice question and people fill out the wrong answer because they're trolling or people fill out this answer because they, they think it's cool or people don't care and they'll just pick whatever or you worded your question wrongly or poorly and people pick the wrong answer. Why is your response to that to go pick on the people who got it wrong? Do you think that's going to increase the public trust of science? Do you think that makes anyone more or less scientifically literate that they can spit back this list of facts that you think they ought to have memorized? No. Being scientifically literate is not like, oh, look at me, like I can go read whatever paper I want on PubMed and pull out the relevant information and know like, Really? I think that being scientifically literate is about two things primarily, that it is about being aware of what the enterprise of science is and how science works. Just that awareness is one major component. And the other major component is exactly what you said. It's an appreciation for how science betters our lives in society that that's really what we're looking at is can people be aware of what science is and how it works and can they appreciate how it betters our lives. Certainly there are ways that science can be abused and misused and it has been. And as a science scientist and science journalist, I think we need to be responsible and vigilant in making sure that when there's bad science or bad science communication out there that we come back with counter messaging that is accurate and correct. Um, but I think it's also important to say, you know, this is a benefit that maybe you yourself didn't work on, maybe I myself didn't work on, 
but we had some very bright people who are committed to investigating their aspects of the universe who did this diligently and scrupulously and if we achieved a scientific consensus which is where the overwhelming majority of scientists working in a particular subfield looked at that full suite of data and all or almost all reached that same conclusion that is not something to be dismissed that is something to be valued that's like the pinnacle of what we've ever reached as far as a human understanding of reality goes that we that we can take like this little bit of mrna and we can inject it into a vaccine at low temperatures into your body and your body can read that rna produce a viral protein destroy the viral protein and then say now I've got my killer T cells and I've got my B cells. I know how to have an immune response to this. And I'm going to be immune to this virus now because I made my own viral proteins out of mRNA. Like, why would you be afraid of that when it's gone through all the trials? It's been, look, I, I understand that, you know, you, it's easy to be afraid of what you don't understand, but why would your response be anything other than, oh, I need to understand this better. Let me seek out the knowledge from the experts that know what they're doing, from the consensus of virologists and immunologists and disease ecologists and public health professionals. Let me find out what the science is behind this so I can make sure I'm getting, getting it right. Rather than getting it, rather than getting your science news from whatever, you know, political establishment you subscribe to get it from the scientists because the scientists especially if you're looking at what is the consensus position of the overwhelming majority of scientists working in the field that's not going to lead you astray if it's wrong if they reach a conclusion that's wrong the only thing that's ever going to uncover that is the same scientific process that got us to that conclusion in the first place yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, it's interesting that some people don't seem to understand that the only way that we know science may not have it quite right is by doing more science. So people, I, I've seen a lot of arguments where people will deride science and the scientific endeavor and things of that nature for not being perfect. And no scientist will claim that it, it is perfect. Um, I mean, it, it's it's full of people. And at the end of the day, we're not, we're not perfect. Uh, like you said, there are bad actors, just like any aspect of society, right? You're going to find people who are willing to cut corners to get ahead. But at the end of the day, it's the best framework that we have for generating new knowledge. And the only way that we know that it's not quite, uh, quite right today is because even better science comes out tomorrow. Um, and another thing too is like what you said earlier about the the scientific consensus. It's uh, what really frustrates me that is that people don't appreciate it for what it truly is and how powerful that statement, uh, the scientific uh, consensus, how how powerful that position is, uh, because people when they when they hear the word consensus, they think it just means like a bunch of scientists getting together and like their all of their opinions are pointing towards this one thing. And nothing could be further from the truth. It's really the, yeah, like the, the suite of evidence, as you said, the suite of evidence, all of the scientists interpreting the evidence and making sure that it's rigorous and up to the highest standards and all of the evidence points towards this one particular 
conclusion, not all of it. I mean, there's no scientific consensus that's 100% to the best of my knowledge, but the vast majority is like, so for example, global warming, it's 97%. But it's just so important that people understand these things and I don't understand, and I know particularly with my own education, I didn't even understand these and I wasn't taught them in like my undergraduate education, like these, these basic philosoph philosophy of science types, types of questions where, or um, underpinnings, let's say, of, of what these things are. I had to learn these as, a, uh, as I developed my uh, own scientific training, but I had to do it on the side. So I just, I just think that there's, again, such a disconnect and such a need for individuals such as yourself. And uh, I know we're running out of time here, but you, you have done some writing over the past year that I've noticed to really help combat the infodemic that has come along with the pandemic, where it's, because normally you write, you do writing where it's more like about the universe, physics, astronomy, things of that nature. And you're talking about fundamental concepts uh, in, this, uh, in this aspect of science. However, I've noticed that you've done things, you've written articles where it's, you know, four things that science is not, I think is your most recent, which is more of like a philosophy of science article, which is really to help people understand what exactly science is and why, you know, to help combat the like conspiracy theories and things of that nature that have uh, come out over the past year. Or another being the, uh, I'm trying to think of what it was. It was uh, why, why you shouldn't confuse like your science literacy with being like an expert in the scientific domain or thinking that you know more than the scientists or something yeah, of that I nature. I remember writing something yeah. about like, should you tell an expert why they're wrong? Like yeah, should that you, a non-expert, yeah, tell an expert yeah. why their yes. opinion is wrong? And, yes, that, you know, and, and, and I did, I, I put in a flow chart at the end where, you know, you can follow and see like, should I, should I do that? <laughs> Probably not. But, yeah. um, you know, the, the whole thing is, you know, you are, you're always going to have bad actors in the field of science. You're always going to have people like, uh, like Andrew Wakefield or Judy Mikovits or Judith Curry or whoever it is who's, you know, taking the science, engaging in fraud or disinformation or twisting the results to present some untenable conclusion because it fits with whatever their agenda is. You are always going to have people like that, but that's not the overwhelming majority of how science works and you will never achieve a scientific consensus that way because this is not like you know someone like i don't know this is going to make me sound very old but this is like oj <laughs> simpson saying i'm going to go out and find the real killers right if you if you have some crazy statement like that the field of scientists is not going to say yeah let's help oj find the real killers they're going to say no 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 no. let's look at the evidence here this is dna this is what dna means here's where the dna like let's look at the forensic evidence let's trace this back only with science especially with the physical sciences there's no humans to get in the way of that you just look at the universe you just look at the straightforward stuff now that's where my specialty is but there are the same people who have the specialties where they are used to folding in the human element. Like you said, sociology, anthropology, disease ecology, um, where you have uh, 
biological sciences, medical sciences, these, these are climate science. These are just as much sciences as my area of specialty. It's just not my area of specialty. So if I want to write about it, what do I do? I go and find a bunch of experts in that field that I know, that I trust, and I'll ask them, like, what's the facts on this? What are the professional opinions? Here's what I was able to find. Is this right? Do you have something better? Can you fact check this for me? Most of them are very happy to do that because they want the correct information to get out there just as much as I want the correct information to get out there. There is, as you say, a big infodemic. And I think at the root of it is the idea that people have this belief that they can pick or choose what aspects of science they want. Like it's the same as lawyering. Like you can sort of say like, oh, well, if I look at these pieces of evidence, but not these pieces of evidence, that I can reach this conclusion, which is the conclusion I prefer. And I'm a perfectly reasonable person. No. That is the no-fly zone in science. You don't get yeah. to do that. You yeah. have to look at the full suite of evidence, all of it, synthesize it together and say, do I have a consistent picture within this framework? And if I don't, that community is not going to let you get away with it. If there are holes to be poked in it, they will. If you've never met a scientist, there is nothing better that a scientist loves to do than to poke holes in your theory, even in their theory, and try to find the ways that it's wrong or flawed or insufficient. Because if something can be destroyed by the truth, by evidence, scientists are more than happy to go destroy it. Yes, they are. And uh, one of the things that scientists love doing is trying to, like you said, poke holes. I mean, it is a competitive endeavor like any other field of um, of employment or any other aspect, what I should say, any other aspect of humanity, where there are people, uh, you know, working towards a common goal. I mean, people compete, they compete with each other. And uh, one of the things that they do when they compete is trying to make sure that the results are as best as they possibly can. And that's just how it works. And science is no different. And we just want to make sure that the results are as rigorous as possible, because at the end of the day, we want to know how things work. Everyone benefits when we understand how reality works. The entire modern world is built on scientific knowledge, the scientific enterprise. The entire, yeah. like you, every, everything that you take for granted these days comes from science. So everybody wins when good science is being done. <laughs> I mean, the more you know and the more you understand and the better you understand where the limits of our knowledge are, I feel the more you can make informed decisions about how to live your life and how to successfully navigate through this world, right? If you were a uh, swimmer in the ocean, you wouldn't want to be willfully ignorant of sharks. If you were a human living through a pandemic, you wouldn't want to be ignorant of the germ theory of disease or understanding how the virus works, right? You, these, are, these are things that I think are just, it's, it's just common sense to say, okay, I might not be the expert in this, but are there experts who know the answer to these questions that I have? And if so, what are those answers? Because I don't want someone's opinion, whether I agree with what their opinion says or not, whether it's favorable for me, what their opinion comes out as, I want to know, is this something we can 
scientifically answer? And if so, what is the answer? Because I know that reality is a cold, hard place that doesn't care about what my preferences are. It's just what is real? Can we know? If we can, what does reality say? And then if we know all of that, what should we do about it? Right? There's this yeah. narrative that I push back against very hard that says scientists should tell you the facts, but let you decide. I don't think that's right. I think scientists are uniquely equipped with this expert knowledge to say, here is what we found and here is what it means. If we want to do something impactful about it, here are the steps we should take. And we should be the ones making those recommendations because we are the only ones who can tell you what impact it's going to have if we do this versus if we don't do this. We are the only ones who have that quantitative understanding because science is this combination of what you observe and measure and experiment with about the universe and also this overarching theory that puts it all together into a framework that allows you to make predictions about what will happen in different circumstances. That is not a part of scientific knowledge that we should discount or throw out. Indeed, to me, it's one of the most powerful parts of science that's out there. One of my favorite uh, sayings that I've come across the past couple of years is science doesn't care what you believe. And yeah. it sounds pretty cold, but at the end of the day, uh, like you said, I mean, reality is cold. Um, it, it, it is what it is, and you kind of just have to deal with it. But anyway, Ethan, I just I wanted to thank you. Uh, we've run out of time. It's been a, just a fantastic conversation. Where can people connect with you? Where can they find you, um, you know, on social media? And starts with a bang, obviously, your blog. But do you have a few other places that you uh, your material appears regularly? Yeah, absolutely. So I have uh, my blog on Forbes.com. It starts with a bang. I'm also on Medium.com and on Patreon. Uh, if you want to subscribe to me, I'm at Patreon.com at Starts with a Bang. And I'm also on Twitter at Starts with a Bang. On Facebook, I run the Starts with a Bang page, Tumblr, and uh, I have a podcast on SoundCloud as well. So uh, if you're looking for me, uh, look for Starts with a Bang. And if you uh, want to find out more about whatever I'm up to at the latest, uh, you can always check out my website at startswithabang.com with links to everything. Fantastic. And for those of you that are tuning in, all of those links will be included in the show notes. So best, uh, definitely check out the show notes uh, for more information about all of that. And stay tuned. Uh, more great content in the future coming. Make sure to go ahead and share uh, share this episode on social media. Go ahead, hit that like button, leave us a review. Your feedback is always welcome. Anyway, until next time. <laughs>